We're talking basketball. Mitch, how often are you going to mention sea shanties on this podcast? Hey guys, I'm just happy to be here. Excited to talk a little basketball with y'all. And in three, two. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Morale Podcast, where we do our three favorite things. Talk a little bit of booze, a little bit of beer, and a whole lot of basketball. Ian, the tall guy, coming back at you. And today, we have a guest, Producer Jay, on the podcast Welcome, man. Hey, guys. I'm just happy to be here. Excited to talk a little basketball with y'all. Yeah, so we're happy to have Producer Jay here, and we are just excited to get into what we're talking today. We are talking overachievers and underachievers. It's another another ratings, ratings, rankings... Just kind of talking about basketball today. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the uh, players and teams that we think have been overachieving so far in this young season and some of the guys that may be underachieving so far. Yeah, absolutely. And we're excited to do it. But before we do, Mitch and Jay have a little bit to say about this whiskey that we're drinking because this one's a bit of a doozy. Yeah, I'm going to say this was a group effort. Thank you to Ethan's girlfriend, Mac, for getting us this bottle. It's Balconese Baby Blue Pot Distilled Corn Whiskey. It looks cool. I like it. Yeah, it's it's a good one, and it's got quite the story to go along with it, doesn't it? It does. So to start off, um, it is the very first Texas whiskey, which when we first read that, I was like, I don't think that, I don't even know if that could be true, but it actually is because... Texas whiskeys is not as old as what you think they would be. Yeah, so it's actually distilled right down in Waco, Texas. Um, And the person who first helped start distill it was this guy named Mr. Tate. And Mr. Tate, once this company started to grow, it took off. He won a bunch of awards when this first batch actually came out of the Baby Blue. And this whole company started to grow really quickly and he couldn't keep up with the man's financial costs and wanted to open up this new distillery to do so. And this new distillery cost millions and millions of dollars. So he had to bring in an outside hire, uh, financial investor, that goes by the name of Mr. Allen, who came in, invested about $8 million, and took over majority of the company. Fast forward a few years down the line, there were some discrepancies in how they wanted the company to be run, some lies by Mr. Tate on how much stuff was actually going to cost when he talked to Mr. Allen to invest originally, and it led to Mr. Tate uh, threatening to shoot up and burn down the company headquarters and distillery if he didn't get his way, and he was shortly arrested or shortly fired afterwards, and charges were pressed against him with a restraining order, etc. That's how you deal with stuff in Texas. Scandal. Scandal. I love whiskeys <laughs> with a good old fashioned scandal. That was another thing. In his desk at his office, he always kept a uh, pistol with him, and when questioned by employees about it, he goes, "It's Texas. It's Texas. This is this is how we handle our problems here in Texas." Dear God. Here, I'm just going to do a quick history. So this is out of TexasMonthly.com. So on top of like the crazy scandal that we already got going with this is it is the very first Texas whiskey. And here is a quote from an article from Texas Monthly. 
Uh, according to whiskey historian Michael Veach, there's no licensed liquor producers of any kind in the state before Prohibition, and the first Texas whiskey distillery, Garrison Brothers, didn't obtain its first permit didn't obtain its permit from the Texas Alcohol Beverage Commission until December 2007. The following year, Balcones, which is this baby blue we're drinking here, got its own distiller's permit, and despite the later start, managed to beat Garrison to market in September of 2009. So this is literally the first whiskey that's ever been made in the state of Texas, which is now the third biggest producer of whiskey, like the third biggest state. That's crazy. That's that's kind of wild that, that it didn't start until 2009, and it's grown so quickly. That being said, stuff was being made in Texas before 2009. It just wasn't being made licensed in it's Texas. It's illegal. The moonshine. So it's 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 a award, but it's not an award. <laughs> I loved it though. It's a, it's definitely a juicy whiskey. It's got some juicy stories to go about it too, which I mean I'm all here for. Yeah. So we're going to uh, we're going to drink it a little bit, and later on we're going to tell you what we think of it. All right, so let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Let's get into the overachievers and underachievers. Let's end on the positive side. So that means let's start with our underachievers so far this year. Um, all right, let me let me ask Jay this. Would you rather talk team, player, or situation? Uh, let's start with player. Let's start with player. Okay, so our underachiever of the year so far, at least based on what we've talked about off, off mic here, is someone who came out of the year super hot, and that player is Trey Young came out firing off this year was in the MVP type conversations. A lot of people were starting to question whether or not that Trey Young Luca deal was as lopsided as people think it is, but he came right back down to earth and has really struggled from the field since. And even more than just struggling from the field, his teammates aren't really gelling with him very much. I know John Collins kind of talked about how Trey Young is having the whole offense just run through him and maybe he just doesn't play winning basketball. Maybe he plays really fun style of basketball to watch, but maybe it's not winning basketball. Just his usage and shooting aren't great. Uh, Mitch, it looks like you have the stats pulled up right there in front of you. Yeah, so Trey Young has a 32% usage rate, which, for those of you who don't know, is a lot. That means a third of the time when the Atlanta Hawks are playing basketball, the ball is in Trey Young's hand. Again, on average, a usage rate is in as a 20% is an average usage rate because if you think 100% of the ball divided by the five players on the court at a time, it's going to be 20%. So he is 12% higher than the average, which is significant. So yeah. like, again, a third of the time that the, the Hawks do anything on offense, on offense, Trey Young is the main guy involved. Yeah, and so some of these other stats is why we chose him as our underachiever. So last year, he averaged 29.6 points per game, and now he's averaging 22.9 points per game. 22.9, that's good. But when you're going to have a really high usage rate and when you're going to be a guy that like the whole team revolves around, especially the offense, uh, you you got to be more efficient than what he has been, which to say it, he is shooting 27.4% from three. Last year it was 361 and he was shooting 38.6% from the field. Last year, it was 43.7. So last year, you're really seeing like a lot of those all-star numbers, and you're seeing why people were thinking he was going to be so good and it actually wasn't that bad of a trade to lose out on Luka Doncic. Now you're starting to see what is it going to look like with a Trey Young who's crazy inefficient, and in addition, we already know he's not going to do anything on defense. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 last year he's putting up video game-like numbers, and it looked easy. At the beginning of this year, he was putting up like MVP-like numbers and it was looking easy. And now it's just his shot has disappeared. He's turning the ball over a lot more. He's 
struggling to find open teammates. Like I, I, I mean, there's a there's a couple of times in the last game where he had like the open play in front of him and he just didn't make it. Like the play was there to be made and he just didn't make it. Yeah, because he's being selfish, and that goes to show, and that goes uh, to what Jay was talking about where John Collins came out and publicly was talking about how frustrated him and a lot of the rest of the team was with Trey Young because he's out here um, pretty much ISOing and doing everything on his own and not taking into account the rest of his teammates. Yeah, and like I said, he's very entertaining, very fun to watch. I remember going back to his days at Oklahoma. He was always electric during college. He was all over ESPN, all over everything. And that's kind of it's still his game in the NBA. It's all about him, him, him. He doesn't want to be this team player of including other people. And as Mitch said there, I just want to reiterate it. He is a liability on defense. He is not very good at defense at all. I don't think he even like pretends like he wants to be good at defense. And a lot of that is going to start off with his general size and athletic ability. He's a really small guy who is not strong he's not quick laterally he doesn't necessarily have the quickest hands in the world and that's just the beginning of the list as to why Trey Young isn't you know a very good defender I mean yeah his defensive he was not he's not in the league to play defense he's in the league to be a creator a outside shooter and just a insanely just stat getter so if you're asking him to play defense it's already a problem but when he's struggling to do what he normally does efficiently, that's where you start to run into issues. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually starting to affect the whole team and their success when he's not being an efficient creator and and a shot maker. Yeah, I mean, the team has lost six of their last eight games and some of them to not good teams. They've lost to the Cavaliers. They've lost to the Knicks, the Hornets twice. Um, the 76, Well, they beat the 76ers, but... They lost to the Jazz. They lost to the Trailblazers. So they've lost to some... I mean, the, the Cavs... The stretch when you lose to the Cavs, Knicks, Hornets, Hornets is tough. And that 76ers team they beat was the COVID-written 76ers team. I'm not even sure if Embiid or Simmons played in that one. Oh, yeah. It's, it's probably one of those high-usage uh, Tyrese Maxey games. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Embiid did play, but... Hey, or, wow, but Simmons didn't, and a lot of their team didn't. They only played seven, eight guys. One, two, three, yeah, nine guys. Nope, eight guys. They only played eight guys. Yeah, so what I'm, I'm looking at some of the team stats here and like what they are, where they sit in the league. The thing that really stands out is that they're 28th in field goal percentage, and that all comes down to Trey Young shooting so much and missing so much. Like even their defensive rating, they're eighth. And defensive rate, like they're not playing bad defense. And it, and that was going into this year where we thought that this team would be playing great defense. And speaking of a team that played great defense and is not playing great defense, let's talk about our team with that is the underachiever of the year so far. And that would be the Miami Heat. The defending Eastern Conference champions just are really struggling out of the gate this year. Yeah, I mean, so... They did beat the Pistons in their last game, but before that, they lost by 20 to the Pistons, lost two games to the to the uh, Sixers, which I do believe was kind of that same team that you're talking about, Jay, where they're uh, missing a whole lot of dudes. They did beat the Wizards and the Thunder, but I don't think that there's really anything outside of one win against the Bucks 
this year that you can really hang your hat on. Yeah, this team is uh, five and seven, good for twelfth in the Eastern Conference so far, which is just brutal. Yeah, I think they honestly might have been. You heard how all these teams were a product of the bubble, and everyone referenced the Miami Heat as this big team that was a product of the bubble just because they all came together and wanted to be in that environment, mostly because of Jimmy Butler. But that's just not translating outside the bubble as we're seeing now. Like right now, they're probably a first-round exit. They're the sixth-best team in the East, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, right now they're not even – they're on the outside looking in, and obviously it's early, but – it, it, this isn't a team that's going to miss the playoffs. I, I I would be shocked if they don't even make the playoffs. But this team does not look like, as you're saying, Jay, a team that is going to make any noise come playoff time. Yeah, they're they're struggling in a lot of facets of the game. They are 22nd in the league in defensive rating with 112 points scored on them per game. They're 19th in offensive rating, putting up 108 uh, and a half points per game, and they are the 29th. I guess, worst rebounding team in the entire league. They're not rebounding. They're not getting shots in like they were last year in the bubble. And the defense has just totally dropped off a cliff. Yeah. I mean, and this team didn't lose a lot of guys outside of this year. I mean, you lost Jay Crowder, but you, you replace him with, with um, some other guys. You have Iggy, who's going to be coming back. You have Bam coming back. You have Jimmy coming back. You have a lot of guys coming back. So it's just, it's crazy to me how, like this team is underperforming so much, but you have to keep in mind that this was the shortest off season in sports history for the most part. And the Miami heat gave it everything in that bubble. Like I'm talking playing seven guys down the stretch, just the toll it has to take on you physically, mentally, and then turn around and come back. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they're struggling, but I can see why just the emotional and the physical toll that the playoff run that they had takes on you. Yeah, I can totally see that. Producer Jay, what are your thoughts here on the Heat? Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of a hand-in-hand. They were that big bubble effect team, as well as they're just tired because they had that short offseason, and maybe they're a little complacent now. I think defense, a big portion in the NBA is how much you care, how much you want to try right now, and it's probably a combination of tired legs and just being complacent after last year that they're now struggling on defense and falling off so much. I think they'll... Uh, not regress, but come back to where they are as a top 10, top 15 defensive team by the end of the year. Yeah, I would not be surprised at that. I mean, they still have Bam Adebayo, who preseason, a lot of people, including us, were saying that he could be a dark horse defensive player of the year candidate. They still have Jimmy Butler, who we know his intensity and his competitiveness will turn on at some point. They still have Andre Iguodala. They still have Avery Bradley. Like This team is not lacking good defenders. I think you guys hit the nail on the head where they're struggling with probably effort and energy and I, I'm willing to bet that you lose a little bit of your willingness to get out there and play every day when you do when you are stuck in a bubble for so long. Yeah, I, I would agree. And this team, this team has the assets to be good. And again, I I agree with both of you that they're going to figure. I mean, this team has eight guys averaging over ten points per game. It's a well-rounded. team. That's a well-rounded offensive team. They have good defenders. They have Bam, Jimmy, you know, Avery Bradley, Goran Dragic has actually picked up his stuff on the defensive end as of late. Precious Achua has been playing really well for them so far this year. Mo Harkless has been giving them valuable minutes. Um, so that there's there's a team here that can can make some noise and can be good, but it's just the opposite of the start that you wanted. 
Yeah, and I think what everyone's going to keep coming back to is the fact that they were playing in the bubble, and it's still early, and I think most people would assume that they're still going to make the playoffs and they can still bounce back, but there's a reason why they're the most underachieving team in the NBA right now because they were in the NBA Finals last year, and right now they are last under... Last year, like a month ago, like two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now here they are at 5-7 uh, and seven and 12th in the East, not exactly where you pictured yourself, you, where you pictured yourself last year when you were in the Finals. Yeah, and it, it was a tough de- decision that we had to uh, try to pick the most underachieving team so far. We, we bounced around a couple of teams that we thought were worth mentioning here. The Raptors have been really bad so far this year, but they are on a three-game winning streak. They just beat the Mavericks by 30. They're playing a lot better. Um, the Nuggets and the Mavs have struggled so far this year as well. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of teams out there that have underperformed, but none of them have done the level of the Heat. Yeah, and the Heat right now are just sitting in kind of that same area where you're talking about with the Raptors, Mavs, and Nuggets where they're slightly under 500, and there is just a whole bunch of teams in the East and the West. They're sitting right there either a couple games above or a couple games below 500. I would still expect that they bounce back, but yeah, have not been has not been looking good so far. All right, so let's switch gears here and talk about our final underachiever of the year so far in the NBA and it's kind of an overachiever our producer Jay said this earlier but uh it's the way that COVID has impacted the NBA season so far um we have seen more games canceled the cases are going up and we're not necessarily saying the NBA is handling it wrong but what we are saying is it's definitely something that's impacting the game and impacting teams so far which is not something that happened in the bubble Yeah, absolutely. And I know Ethan with the Mavs and me with the Nuggets, Michael Porter Jr. has been out the last three weeks. I know the Mavs have been rampaged with COVID. You've had, what, four or five guys out? We've had five, I think. We we got one back last game, so now we're at four. But the most we had was five out at one time with COVID. Yeah. And we're still lucky to even be just playing in games. The Wizards haven't practiced in a week or even played a game in a week now. The Boston Celtics lost three games, four games, the 76ers played a lot of games with skeleton rosters. It's just, it's the nature of the beast of playing professional sports this year. But going like as a fan, we were so spoiled with the way the bubble was that we were like, oh, we don't even have to think about it as a possibility because these players are sacrificing a lot, living in a bubble so that we can watch them. Now we're trying to give the players a sense of normalcy while also being able to watch them. And this is just where we're at right now. Yeah, as we sit tonight, so tonight is a bit of an anomaly uh, because there's only two games going on. But in the last in the last week, in the last seven days, there has only been one day that did not have any postponed games. So every single day, we are starting to see at least one, and in, in a couple cases, two or three games getting postponed. So we're not condemning like what the NBA has been doing. We think that a lot of the protocols that they're that they're putting in are working and we think that they're being extra cautious and really trying to take care of all the players. That being said, it's just it's it's the nature of the beast this year. Like you said, it's going to happen and it's really starting to take a hold of the league. Yeah, and it it, it just sucks. I mean, everything about COVID sucks. We don't need to get into why it sucks because it sucks for everyone, but as fans, it just it makes basketball a little bit different to watch. Like as, as a Mavs fan, you you missing three starters and two of your top bench players, like that's going to impact the way your team plays and that's going to impact the product on the court. You know, when you're starting two-way guys, when you're playing two-way guys heavy minutes. And I'm not just saying the Mavs are the only team that does. The 76ers, 
had Dwight Howard having to run point guard. And I'm saying that facetiously, <laughs> but he did have to do that a couple of times where he had to bring the ball off the court. And like, it's just very interesting to see how the NBA is handling it. This is the best that they could do in the situation, which I think they're doing a, a fantastic job of handling it and making it so that there's a product to watch while keeping everyone as safe as you can. But it is a bummer that the way that COVID is impacting the way the NBA is having to operate this year. Yeah, and there's already been talk about potentially moving this season into another bubble, and it's had split reviews. I've seen some players like Dame has said that he would be for getting in a bubble, might be able to push the season along, and I've seen guys like LeBron, who clearly is going to be a potential finals candidate, like say that he had PTSD about the idea of going into another bubble. So it's clearly been split on opinion throughout a lot of the league and what the NBA is actually going to do going forward if they do something as drastic as creating another bubble or do they just continue to push along. My gut is that they don't make any decisions at least until the end of this first half of the schedule that they created, which is around the early March date. Well, there is a lot of talk now. I saw it came out today that they're talking about vaccinating all the players and using uh, the reasoning behind of showing the vaccine safe by all of these super extraordinary athletes that a lot of people look up to as people who got the vaccine to promote other people to want to go get it and know it's safe. Um, So I know that's in talks right now as well. Yeah, the only thing that we do know for certain right now is that the NBA has no plans on shutting down or stopping at all. That's the one thing that they have made clear through all this is that the NBA is not stopping. They're going to keep going and pushing through and just making the best out of what comes their way. Yeah, got to get that money. Lost, I've already lost, already lost at least a billion dollars, and this is including last year's season. This is including the postseason that they didn't really get to have, and like crowd ticket sales, not including uh, the China TV deal falling through last year because of all the uh, Daryl Morey stuff. So they are very, very interested in keeping this lead or this season going, so they can get that money. Yeah, it's a tough year to be a accountant for the NBA. It's just, it's just by all stretch of the imagination. It's just the books have got to be really weird this year. But I do know one thing for certain is that the NBA is not going to stop. And like you said, they're going to do everything they can to get that money. And as Mitch is pouring his second glass of the whiskey that we are drinking tonight, let's get let's get back into this. Let's get back into this baby blue and talk about it. If there's any more stories we have or we can talk about tasting, let's, let's get into it a little bit. So I... Sorry. I think that the uh, very first thing that comes off is it has a very, very unique smell to it. And I think Ethan is probably going to like it because I think that it's one of the less harsh whiskeys that we've tried here on the podcast. So yeah, when I when I tasted it, I would agree it's super smooth, it's super easy drinking. Um, I get a lot of cherry when I, when I drink it. I get a lot of vanilla and I get a lot of cherry, which is both really on the sweeter side. I, I get a little bit of caramel as well. It, it's just very smooth and easy drinking. Yeah, it's nice and nice and sweet. Um, it's a very, very heavy corn-based mash bill inside of this one. And I get just tons of sweetness, almost like a candy corn side of, you know, type of thing. What do you think, Jay? You guys have the more uh, refined palate than me. <laughs> We've had a lot of practice lately. Yeah, I know you guys uh, get <laughs> a couple. This is episode 22. <laughs> So we've tried about 22 different whiskeys in the past three months. Starting to learn what they're supposed to taste like now. Yeah, you know, I taste less than just whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, see, I'm still in the phase where I just taste whiskey 
Uh, this one tastes sweet, kind of as they said, and I like to drink it. It tastes good. Uh, that's about all I got for you guys. Oh, nice. Okay, so some of the other flavors that I was really getting, so you really mentioned the vanilla. I think that it looks and smells and has heavy caramel taste in it, and I was doing a little bit of reading on it, and I didn't notice this until I started drinking it, but I think that it has banana. Banana? Nanners. Oh, I love banana. Nanner nanners. Hold on. Wait. <laughs> So, so Mitch, banana. Mitch and I basically we kind of go through the whiskey beforehand so that we're not completely off when we're tasting it. And Mitch said that there's one ingredient or one flavor that he wasn't going to tell me until we were on microphone, and it's banana. It's banana. Now that you say no. it, I absolutely taste it. Yeah, as soon as I as soon as I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, I taste banana. Oh my, I taste banana. <laughs> There is banana in our whiskey. <laughs> what the hell is going on? And a big piece of that is because when you have a naturally high corn mash bill, um, corn is a much has like a lot more sugar and is a much more natural sweetener. So it makes sense as to why we get a lot more fruity flavors and a lot more like sugary flavors out of this. I mean, I was way off when I guessed cherry, but I was at least in the fruit category. Mm -hmm. So I guess I wasn't too terribly gone. I don't think that you were necessarily wrong about cherry. And I think that's one of the special things, you know, when we start tasting whiskey and me and Ethan have gotten to try a lot, you start realizing, you know, what different flavors are and what you like and what you don't. Because when I first tasted it, I also got some cherry in it too. So it's kind of to each their own. And sometimes when you go in and read them, you're like, oh my gosh. That's a flavor I had no idea was going to be in there. And then you start drinking and looking for it and you find it. Yeah. And, and it was one of those things where I was tasting it and almost the back end when you, when you swallow it, you almost, I almost get like a really buttery white wine type mm -hmm. thing at the end of it. Like a, well, I don't know what type of wine is buttery, a Sauvignon Blanc. I think that's the buttery one. Yeah. Chardonnay. Chardonnay. <laughs> Max over there shouting Chardonnay. So it's a Chardonnay, a nice buttery Chardonnay back end to this whiskey. But yes, overall... Pretty, pretty sweet, pretty smooth, um, very easy to drink. You're so, even drinking it without ice over there now. So, so basically what we told you is this has caramel, cherry, banana, butter, and uh, <laughs> what? Sweet in it. Candy corn. Candy corn. So yeah, it, as you can tell, we're still getting better at tasting, but there's a lot going on in this one. I, uh, I would definitely recommend. I think this is one of my favorite ones that we've had so far. Yeah. Solid pick, Mac. Shout out, Mac. Shout out, Mac. She says the one that doesn't drink whiskey is the best at picking it out, which <laughs> is not necessarily wrong. All right. So let's go to the positive side here and let's talk about some overachievers so far. And let's start with the player. And we have one player in mind who has picked his game up from an all-star level to an MVP type level. And that is Juan DeMontis Sabonis. We've talked about him before, but he is having an insane start to the year in the... He has the Pacers looking actually really good, even after getting rid of Oladipo and having Karis LeVert. I'm very excited to see what this team can do. So I am a natural Sabonis lover. I love the whole family tree of the Sabonis. My favorite jersey is the Arvita Sabonis jersey from the Blazers. And I cannot tell you how enthused I am about how well DeMontis Sabonis is playing. Uh, I think something that Jay can kind of uh, sympathize with is that his style is kind of Jokic-like. He's not as big as Jokic. He doesn't have the same kind of vision um, that Jokic has, but he has that same kind of slow, plodding, methodical, finds his spaces kind of game. That's exactly what I was going to say. He's more athletic than Jokic. Yes. Uh, he doesn't have the vision and passing that Jokic has, 
and not the brunt that Jokic brings, but he has this athleticism where he can get around, he can find his spots. And the Pacers have kind of gone to the similar style that the Nuggets have gone through of playing through their centers. Uh, The Nuggets play through through Jokic at a very high rate, and the Pacers play through Sabonis at a very high rate. I looked it up, and they both have the highest usage rate, I want to say it was. They both have the highest usage rate of any player in the NBA. Yeah, I mean they the the off the ball definitely runs through him, and and if you're a fan of the Pacers, you have to be just ecstatic of the growth that Sabonis has had. So let me let me let me rattle off some numbers for you guys. So his rookie year, he averaged five point nine points, one assists, and three point six rebounds. His second year, eleven point six points, so a five point increase. Two assists, a whole assist increase, and a 7.7 rebounds, a four rebound increase. Go to his third year, 14 points, three point increase, 2.9 steals, another or 2.9 assists, another assist increase, 9.3 points, two rebound increase. Last year, 18.5 points, four four and a half point increase, um, five assists. That's a two assist increase. 12.4 rebounds. That's a three rebound increase. This year, 21.7 points. That's another four point increase. His assists have risen by a, a whole assist a game, and he's averaging one a half a rebound more per game. So his his growth is just can you can you can see it in the stats. He's he's getting better and better and better and better in every year he plays. And you know what's crazy is it wasn't more than two to three years ago when the Pacers, they've been running this Sabonis, Miles Turner lineup for a while, and it wasn't more than two or three years ago that Turner was the prized possession of the uh, Pacers front court. And we all thought that he was the all-star of the future, and we all thought that he was going to be the guy because he kind of fit this modern NBA mold of a big man that can block shots and shoot threes. And now, all of a sudden, Sabonis is really growing into his game and really like the game is slow down so much for him and he reads the court so well and to have a guy jump from being a kind of a good role player good solid starter to jumping to be an all-star the next year that's amazing that's great you'd love to see that from a guy and then the very next year to jump up over into the 21 point per game still averaging right around the 13 rebounds per game and to be vaulted into dark horse mvp candidate candidacy you like can't even dream for that kind of thing to happen for a guy who was relatively unknown and not like being used all that well and wasn't producing at at all of these kind of you know numbers and for him to make that vault is absolutely huge we'll see that if it can be sustained though yeah and and he does it in a way that's not selfish either because he he's so efficient in everything he does that it just doesn't seem like you, you kind of forget he's even there. He's The ball's always running through him, but all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, like, Simone's played today, but what do you... And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, he had 28 and 8, or 28 and 12, and you're like, holy cow, like, that was a very quiet 28 and 12. Yeah, the ceiling's the limit with this, or he's got such a high ceiling too. He's only 24 years old. He's still got three or four years till he's even going to hit his t- quote-unquote peak. So I'm excited to see how he grows and how much better he gets over the next couple of years. 
Yeah, I've always just been a, a fan of the Pacers ever since Reggie Miller years. I just, for whatever reason, they seem like kind of a small market team in the East that continues to be good. Never really great, but always in the playoffs and always good. And they seem to be churning out a different all-star every single year, which is kind of wild. But I, you know, I already said that I'm biased towards the Sabonis family in the first place. And I am, I'm just ecstatic to see that he is turning into such a great player. And he's showing that you don't have to be the most athletic guy in the gym. You don't have to be the best shooter in the gym. If you can play the game the right way and if you can read the court the right way and like kind of have the game slow down, you could be just as effective as anybody else. Yeah, I mean, the NBA is kind of becoming this league of you have either super athletic guys or you have super skilled guys. I mean, the Luka Doncic's, the Devonta Sabonis, the Jokic's, like guys like that can hang with these super athletes of LeBron, you know, uh, Russell Westbrook, you know, all these like crazy athletes because they're so finesse based, because they're so skilled, because they've got that quote old man game that will never die because it's just awesome to watch and super fun. Yeah. So, uh, claps out to you, DeMontis. I hope that you can continue to play with the same kind of efficiency and continue to stay in that dark horse MVP candidate spot for the rest of the season. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh let's let's shift gears here and talk about one of the teams that we're going to talk about here is that is one of the most overachieving teams and that is a team that has dealt with a ton of injuries this year and still kept themselves afloat. And that is the Memphis Grizzlies. They are 500, I think. 7 and 6. So they're a game above 500 after having Ja Morant out for a month and not having Triple J all year long. Just beat the Suns. Like just beat like the I don't want to say the Suns have been a juggernaut this year, but they've certainly been one of the most consistent and best Western Conference teams. And I would say one of the few teams you could actually guarantee is a lock for the playoffs in the West. And the Grizz came out with one of their first games back with Jaw, and they win. Did you watch Huge. any of that game? Little bits. Jaw Morant took over at the end. He said, this is my game. I'm going to go win it. He had the game-winning layup and then drew a defensive foul on Chris Paul and won them the game. Dude, that's just who he is. I think that he's one of those he's going to be one of those guys that he's absolutely fearless, hyper athletic, high, like super crazy fast. Hops like that I mean, he almost destroyed Kevin Love's career if he actually like converted that dunk last year. Like he he's got a little bit of everything and even his shooting is really starting to come around too. I think that the Grizzlies are going to be super dangerous not only because of John Morant but the fact that they could stay 500 in the West in this weird season without John Morant for the majority of it so far. That's yeah. why they're dangerous. Yeah, they're also missing Jaron Jackson Jr., who's their best defender by far and one of the best defenders in the league. And their best what? shooter. He's their best like pure shooter on the team. Yeah, and he's he's one of the most like versatile players in the NBA. And the fact that they're able to hang in and be where they are with the injuries they've had to their superstars shows how good and well-rounded this team is. Got to give props to Desmond Bain, who's been playing really well off the bench for them in his rookie year. They've had Grayson Allen giving them valuable minutes. Kyle Anderson, slow-mo, still doing his thing. Like They have a decent, well-rounded roster um, that can really just make some noise. You know who on their team I love is Xavier Tillman. He's played really well for them. He's just another mold of a Draymond Green type guy where he's going to just going to be this very smart ball player who can play good defense and knows how to find the right guy on offense to get him the ball. 
Yeah, and if you're a Grizzlies fan, I think that another good comp for him is kind of like a Zach Randolph. He's he's sturdy. He's thick. He's gonna move people the hell out of that paint. He's a chonker. He's a chonker, and he like and yes, he he's really smart. Coming out of that Michigan State program, like always creates good, solid, fundamental dudes, and it always bodes well when you're all, when you come into the NBA and you have NBA size. Like you can already start pushing around some of the smaller fours and smaller fives already. Yeah, this, this team is scary for multiple reasons. One, they are so young. Two. They are doing this well without their stars in the West. Let's keep that in mind. They're in the West. The Western Conference has so many good, young, talented teams that the NBA is going to be in great hands. Like the John Morants, the Lucas, the Zions, the Jokic's. There's so many good young players in the West that the Devin Booker's, you know, guys like that, that the NBA, like it's almost like a changing of the guard that's going to happen here in two to three years when the LeBrons are done. The Wester Westbrooks are done. The Damian Lillards are done. You know, the DeMar DeRozans are done. And it's going to be passed off to these young guys that are going to be just super fun to watch. Here's a quick list of the teams that they have beaten so far in the in the season. Just beat the Suns. Beat the 76ers the game before. Beat the Timberwolves, Cavaliers, Nets, Hornets, Nets. So, like... Good wins. And two of their losses came against the Lakers and uh, another one came against the Celtics. So teams that you kind of would expect them to be dropping games to, especially considering that they don't even have their top two, you know, stars. Yeah, the, the, the sky's the limit for this team. It might not be this year where they're, they're championship or even playoff ready, but this team has the tools and has the star power to be scary for sure. And they're playing well this year. You got to give them props. They, they, they were on the outside of looking at a lot of playoff brackets to start this year, like playoff predictions and they're making noise. They're definitely making noise and they're, they're turning heads for sure. Yeah. They'll make, I I'm going on record now. They'll at least be in the play in games. They'll be in one mm-hmm. of the play in games. They'll be one of the top 10 seeds in the West. Yeah. I would, I'd honestly be surprised if they like fall out of the playing game. And I would not be surprised to see this team. They were the eight seed going into the bubble. And I would not be surprised to see them right around that, like, you know, playoff spot, seven, eight seed, because at some point they are going to get Jaron Jackson back. They proved that they had the medal to compete without their guys. Now they already have jaw. They're going to get Jaron back. This team scares the absolute hell of me because they play the Blazers, their next two games. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're going to lose to those guys. I'm so nervous. They, they, they are good. Let's talk about another really good team that is just maybe one of the most under-the-radar teams in the NBA this year. No one's really talking about them, yet they're playing really good ball. And that is the Utah Jazz. They are 9-4. and four. That's good for, I think, third in the West? Maybe fourth in the West? I think fourth in the West because the Suns are ahead third. of them. Third? They, so they pass the Suns. So yeah, they're good for third in the West. And they're just, no one's talking about them. No one's talking about this team who's nine and four and has some quality wins. Yeah. So a couple of quick, just like team stats things. They're the number one three point field goal percentage team in the league or number four, three point field goal percentage on the number one amount of three point field goals taken. So they're jacking it up and they're hitting a high conversion rate. They're also the number one rebounding team in the league, which, you know, not necessarily surprising seeing that they run out Rudy Gobert and Derek favors every single night. And, uh, they are number 10 in offensive rating and number six in defensive rating. That is a very good recipe for success in the NBA when you're top 10 in offense and defense. 
Absolutely. I think it makes this one player makes a heck of a difference on their team is Bogdanovich. He was out last year. He had surgery on his wrist, I believe, right before the bubble. Yeah. So he missed the entire bubble. And people kind of slept on how big of a changer that was for the Jazz. He helps just space the floor for them so much better, uh, especially with Donovan Mitchell driving, Mike Conley driving. Having a guy like Bogdanovich on the corner, the opposite wing, that can just sit there and hit threes all day long makes a huge difference in helping that team succeed. Yeah, another guy that definitely upped his game that is really helping this team out is Mike Conley. He has played almost polar opposite to the way he played last year. His just just for for example, his stats. He shot 40% from the field last year. He's up to 45 this year. He shot 37 from 3 last year. He's shooting a scorching 42% from the field this year on 7 attempts a game. That is crazy efficiency. Averaging almost 17 points a game, up three points from last year. This is the Mike Conley that the uh, Jazz traded for when they went to go get him from the Grizzlies. Yeah, I think that they're starting to look like that team. Last year during the preseason, they made that trade for Conley. They went and got Bojan Bogdanovich, and everyone was starting to talk about how they're a sleeper Western Conference Finals and potentially sleeper championship team. I think that it may have taken them a year to really round into form and really figure out what they're doing, but they are starting to look like that team we were talking like they could have been last year. Yeah, Conley even came out today or sometime in the last week or so and said it took him a whole year to get used to running the pick and roll with Gobert because he used to always just run the pick and pop with who was the center? Gasol. Gasol. He always used to run the pick and pop and it was just completely different to him running the pick and roll with Gobert. So it took that full year for them to get used to it. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the NBA, you're talking about making decisions in fractions of seconds. And so it's not surprising to me to takes a year it takes a long time for t- players to get used to it because you're you're talking like almost like instinctive reactions like you can't think in the nba you just have to act because everything happens so fast so being able to just get into it and just have everything flow as easy as it is a lot of people are not talking about the jazz kind of writing them off thinking that the fits were weird thinking that conley was washed thinking that Bogdanovich might not be back, thinking that Joe Ingles was going to regress. And this team has just proven a lot of people wrong. They're playing really, really, really good basketball this year. Yeah, I also, I love that, uh, what you were saying, Jay, because I haven't even thought about the fact that Conley's pick and roll game was so much different when he was playing with the Grizz. And like what you're saying, it's all about fractions of seconds and how are you reading the defense? How are you... Uh, going to read how that defender plays your pick and roll. Are they hedging on you? Are they going to sag on you? How does that affect what you're going to do? And the idea of playing with a guy like Gasol, who by himself is a great playmaker, so you can give him the ball on the free throw line and then he can go and make his own play versus playing with Gobert, who is just polar opposite to what Marc Gasol does where he's not going to pop ever. He's going to be rolling every single time and it really puts a lot more pressure on the point guard to either be hitting him in stride with defenders on him or on Gobert or being able to learn how to do lob, be a lob threat because that's just not what Gasol is going to do. So that's a great point. I think Conley is a absolutely massive part of this team. I think that another player that we talked about preseason who we thought was going to be good and he's proving that he is good is Jordan Clarkson. He's playing like a genuine six man of the year candidate and for a team that's really built on depth and really built on uh, high efficiency shooting, Jordan Clarkson has proved to be the perfect bench player for the Jazz. Yeah, I'm I'm going to pat myself on the back because I called him my six man of the year this year and I'm not backing down. I think he's going to play himself into the conversation. 
I think the numbers are there. The efficiency's there. I think he's playing out of his mind good. You keep doing you, Jordan Clarkson, because I'm loving it. All this Jordan Clarkson talks got given me PTSD to the uh, playoff series against the Jazz last year between the Nuggets and Jazz, where he would just come <laughs> in and cook us. And it'd just be like, come on, Jordan. <sighs> yeah, dude. That was, that was an epic series with you guys. And... The Jazz, I would say, were not even playing to the best of their abilities at that time, and you guys still really struggled with them. And I think that this year we are really starting to see that Jazz team that a lot of people were talking about preseason last year, and it's going to be really interesting to see can they keep up the pace, continue to beat these really good teams, and continue to take this all the way through the rest of the season into the playoffs. Yeah, and it's crazy to me how many threes they're shooting. Mm -hmm. They are just chucking... I mean... Donovan Mitchell himself averages almost nine threes a game, three attempts on 37% efficiency. So he's above average shooting, but nine threes a game is ridiculous. That's so many times he's pulling up from outside, uh, outside the lane or outside the three point line. His actually, his field goal percentage isn't that great. It's 41, almost 42, but 37 from three on almost 8.8. So nine attempts a game is crazy. Yeah, I think that Donovan Mitchell is he's gonna he's kind of like the lowest efficiency guy on this team, but he's the guy that's taking the hardest shots. He's the one at the end of the shot clock that's having to create his own shot, kind of having to toss it up there at the end. And so his percentages are gonna go down just naturally being the star player at the highest usage rate. But it goes to show how well the rest of this team is playing. So uh, Utah Jazz, congratulations. Uh, not a lot of people are talking enough about you guys because you're in sleepy old Salt Lake City. But I uh, I think that the Jazz have a very, very high ceiling for the rest of the season. Not a team you want to play in a playoff series at all. Not at all. Well, that wraps up all of our uh, overachievers and underachievers. Um, I think we did a pretty good job not leaving anyone out. There's some other people out there that we wanted to mention, other teams out there that we wanted to mention, but... We had to pick three for each, and I, I think I think we, we picked the best for each one. Yeah, but if you disagree, reach out to us on our socials. Go out on uh, Twitter, go out on Instagram, and tell us if you disagree. Tell us who you think is an underachiever or overachiever that we may have missed out on. Yeah, ladies' man Tom runs our Twitter, and the man is looking for a fight. <laughs> the man is out there just itching to get into Twitter beef with someone. So let it, let, give, give lady man, ladies' man Tom what he wants, everybody. And thank you to producer Jay for joining us yeah. on this podcast. Thank you guys for having me on. It's always a blast and I'm glad I got to drink good whiskey and talk basketball with you guys. Yeah, it's it's fun to have us. We've got a good little uh, group here that's running the Team Morale podcast. It's a lot of moving parts, so it's it's nice to have everyone on every once in a while and give everyone shout outs. So shout out to, uh, you know, producer Jay helps us out a ton. Tom runs our social, ladies man Tom. Mac out there running our... Uh, our Instagram, she's doing a great job. So yeah, shout out to all the people that make all this possible. Yes, thank you to the team that is Team Morale Podcast. That was good. <laughs> all right, everybody. And on that note, we let's cheers. 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 cheers.